being a guest person for myself and not really for other people have been how I've kind of learned how to um, like get my voice for myself. Welcome to our podcast series, Resistance in Color. We explore resistance as the way that we fight the challenges, structures that negatively affect spheres of our mental, social and physical health. We hear from a host of BIPOC voices of community members featuring activists, healers, organizers, students. We will engage in how we resist, find solidarity and gain insight on how to cope within our own bodies. The series features stories of incredible resilience focused on the healing of both individuals and communities as an active form of resistance. This podcast series has been made possible by the Fund for Safe Communities grant of the Minneapolis Foundation to NAMI Minnesota's Multicultural Youth Advisory Board. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hi everyone, welcome back to this episode of Resistance in Color. Um, I hope you're sticking through the whole series because we have amazing people still lined up. And for this episode, we are inviting Maria to join the conversation. So a little bit about her. She is a second generation Hmong American woman who is a first generation college student pursuing psychology. And she is currently in the McNair Scholars Program doing research for the summer at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, where she is also going to school. In addition, she's also part of the transnational feminist organization called The Firm, where she's learning how to organize and fight against oppression in all of its forms. So welcome, Maria. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Well, welcome, welcome. Um, to start with, we've asked this question to everyone who comes on, on the show just to hear what different people have to say. What does the term resistance mean to you? And then if we say in color, resistance in color, does that change the definition or what, what does that sound like to you? Yeah, so when I think about resistance, originally I kind of just think about how I've gone through struggles. But when thinking about resistance in color, I realize that when I go through struggles, I don't go through them alone. And I have people that are with me. And a lot of those times, it's really just people of color that, you know, are backing me up. So I think that resistance really has a strong, like, sense of solidarity with other people, especially people of color, because, like, we go through things that, you know, some people without color might not be able to understand. And so resistance, it's something I've always, I'm always learning about. It's never... It's not something you just know. It's like something you kind of learn through time and you gain uh, with other people. And just as a community, it's something that you have together. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. I really love that answer. Um, And going back to like some of the things that we said in your introduction of like your work as a student, as a researcher, um, how do you think your identities have impacted those of your work or any of your passions like are they um impacting you in any way in terms of like you being a first gen a mom american a woman etc yeah so when thinking about my identities i would say like being first gen has been a big part of my like life um although um, although fortunately i've been able to have like older siblings to guide me through college and many of it it's from my sisters and so that's where like I feel very passionate about feminism just because through all my life, my sisters have been the ones to guide me through many of like my obstacles. Um, and I just feel like 
in the society, it's really hard to kind of be a lone woman of color. And so having just more women of color to back you up and guide you through things Mm -hmm. has been super impactful and just has taught me how to be more resistant. Um, And yeah, and being so second gen among women, um, it's been kind of tough. But the Hmong culture is kind of tough sometimes. It's very patriarchal. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much taught to not have a voice. And so, like, first of all, I'm very thankful for you all for giving me a voice to have a platform to, like, really share my experiences. Um, But also, growing up, I didn't know how to voice myself. Mm -hmm. And so just having, like, so many people of color and especially women of color to really guide me and, like, teach me how to be assertive and teach me how to stand up for not just myself but other people that has been like very impactful for me especially in terms of being resistant so not just resistant for myself but also other people and other communities of colors especially i like how you um explained um from your perspective and and i guess also from the community perspective because sometimes we we are products of the places and the environments that we have too Mm-hmm. And if you think about that layer, how then those identities have impacted both you or your community's um, experiences related to the pandemic or mental health and, and, and wellness, how do you feel like um, those identities have kind of worked together or made things worse or made things better? I would say that a lot of things have helped me just voice my problems I think something in the society that we live in we don't talk about our problems and so being able to just voice my problems to people that are close to me or people that can understand especially in the pandemic has been very helpful for me Mm. Um, and also it's just a way of me to validate myself and other people's experiences because I would never have known that some people go through the same things that I have if we hadn't talked about it. And that's just been very helpful throughout the whole pandemic. I like what you said about learning to have a voice. Could you expand a little bit about what you mean with that? Both from like your own perspective and how you feel like your community or culture inhibited or encouraged you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in my experience, so personally in my culture... Um, Like I said, I was taught to not have a voice and just to follow people, uh, more specifically men, and just listen to what they do and what they want me to do and just be a yes, yes person. And so, like, I knew that didn't really feel well. Like, that was just, on the one hand, I'm like, wow, I'm people like me because I am doing what they want me to do. But on the other hand, I'm not happy because I'm not doing what I want to do. Um... Like, I don't want to be washing dishes throughout the whole party because we have so many parties. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to eat and enjoy and talk to people. But the talking, I guess, during um, when I wash dishes with other women. And so, yeah, that has, like, made me really think about my voice. And my sisters have always, you know, told me they're like, you should just do what you want. And the biggest question for me has always been, how do I do what I want? Mm Mm-hmm. And how do I tell people that without them judging me? But ultimately, I've learned that people can judge you for good and bad, anything they will judge you for. And so having to assert my own capacities and my own, um, 
having to assert my own priorities has been something that I've been trying to do better at. I still kind of have a hard time just because throughout every, like, even through school, if I, if we had a math problem and I knew the answer, but I'll still be like, oh, I think it's three, but I'm not sure. Mm. Even though I knew it was three or whatever. (sighs) So just validating myself and be like, yeah, I know it's three. And yeah, that's right. Um, and in my own decisions, not related to math, of course, but just being like, yeah, that's what I want. And yes, this is how I'm going to do it. And so being a guest person for myself and not really for other people have been how I've kind of learned how to um, like get my voice for myself. Mm. I like I like what you said, because um, I was having a conversation recently about this, too, how you kind of make yourself small, even though how you're saying, you know, the answer is you, but you'll be like, but I don't know. Even in conversations, yeah. do you realize sometimes how many times we say, I don't know. When somebody asks you your opinion, you'll be like, I don't know. But then you'll go ahead and give an opinion. So you know. So why do we mm-hmm. say, I don't know? It, it's really it's really weird. So I think it is a lot about realizing the power of your voice. A friend of mine likes to say, say it with your chest. So learning how to do yes. that too. <laughs> the process. I love that. <laughs> As a fellow Asian women I definitely like share a lot of the struggles I think that Maria has gone through not that ours is like completely similar but thank you so much for sharing that I feel like a lot of the people in the world they should be feeling like we are going through the same problem Mm. exactly what Maria said about how we often don't express our problems as much as we express like our successes or like the positive the peaks social media (laughs) um but for a backstory i know i personally know maria from being in a lab together so i kind of wanted to ask like what kind of got you into doing research or getting interested in like doing something that's like scholarly yeah so honestly um so i so sayan i think you're doing a bachelor's of science but i'm doing a bachelor's bachelor's of art in psychology and so I never emphasized myself with doing like research and stuff like that because I was like I'm gonna go into mental health and I'm gonna go into the clinical work but now I'm realizing that I kind of actually do really like research a lot and so in the fall um I was just looking for a research position and so that's where we met our lab supervisor and I was like, yeah, I want to do this. And so, yeah, that's where I'm at. I think it also really aligned where it was a... So the lab is about non prejudice against non-binary folks. And that's something I'm not super... At first, I wasn't super versed in it very well. Like, I didn't... I understood, but I didn't really know much about it. And so I just found it to be a really good place for me to learn more and be, like, a better ally while, like, also getting my experience. And mm-hmm. so it was just... I was just killing so many birds with one stone in that lab yes our lab also had a lot of queer people (laughs) as well which was amazing it was beautiful Mm. Uh, and on the same line can you tell us a little bit more about what the McNair scholars program entails and what you're doing within it yeah so the McNair scholars it's a federal program I think where they fund a summer of research for you to do with a professor or a faculty member, and then from there, they kind of expect you to 
they call it direct matriculation. So they expect you to go into grad school either right away or very soon afterwards. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of, there's a lot of pressure around it, but it's really cool. It's kind of like an in intensive, um, like an intensive program for you to do research really quick and just analyze all your data and write a paper. Okay. And so, yeah, that's been really interesting. Um, I've been meeting new people. And so, um, okay, so my role in the program is as a McNair scholar. So I'm doing research with Dr. Richard Lee. So me and Zion actually had this teacher together. And and so they actually had a survey that they've done longitudinal for people at the university on their emotional wellness during the COVID pandemic. So kind of aligns with this podcast. Nice. And, and I'm specifically focusing on so how some people perceive discrimination against themselves or others across the whole pandemic during various events. So like for now, I'm kind of focusing on before and after Dante Wright, how people have perceived discrimination. Mm. Wow. Are you able to share with us a snippet of what that looks like? Or I don't know if you have any findings as you go along, but that's really interesting. Perceptions of wellness. even. Yeah, I wish I could give you anything, but I... Right now, I'm really stuck, so I haven't done any analyses, so I can't help you there. It's okay. It's okay. And, and it's cool, actually, to be able to, that we're interested in how, I think even research around mental health, how, how that looks really different, you know, that you're doing research and things that we can think, okay, psychologically, how can we measure these um, markers of wellness versus having conversations like this and being part of discussions where people are trying to understand what wellness looks like for them versus what other people have told them wellness looks like so this is cool this is cool <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more about your work with our firm and maybe even for our listeners who might not be familiar with our firm tell us a little bit about um uh what working with a firm has been like and what work at a firm is like yeah, so Affirm is, uh, so we're a grassroots organization, mm -hmm. and originally it was based in the Philippines with a different name, I can't recall, but now um, we call ourselves Affirm, and it, there's a really big, um, so there are big chapters in Hawaii, uh, LA, and New York, and there's also other chapters around the country. Um, so yeah, so we are a transnational organization, and so the reason I mentioned the Philippines is because we like to think about feminists. We like to think about women issues across different countries, right? Mm -hmm. Because issues look very different across different countries. Like in the United States, what we worry about is vastly different from what people, women in the Philippines would worry about or or other countries. And so we try to um, keep those in mind when we are learning about policies and how to adapt them. And so, so I'm starting a chapter in the Twin Cities, but we haven't, we haven't officially kind of got together and like find any ways we want to do policy work. Mm -hmm. um, but so before we get there, we're just trying to learn about how to organize better because there's a crazy science about behind organizing. I never knew. Mm -hmm. It's just so crazy. Um, so yeah, so basically my goal and my my organization's goal is to abolish the sex trade because that 
it's ongoing. We don't, it's just crazy. And so we're trying to abolish that. And with capitalism and imperialism, we're also trying to um, address issues surrounding those because those have been around for forever and they're just such long-term effects from it. Um, yeah, I think that basically summarizes what I do with the firm. Those are big things. You said sex trade, capitalism, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Big, <laughs> these are big topics. And maybe just borrowing a little bit from what you said um, on the science of organizing. Can you speak a little bit to what that process has been like, learning what are some of the things, some of the ways you've organized um, to come, kind of address some of the uh, some of the ways of oppression that you've talked about here? Yeah, so with organizing and these topics, so they're very controversial and very tough topics. And Mm -hmm. so the first thing I had to do was learn about it. Um, And then the second thing I had to learn how to do, I'm still learning how to do, is how to tell other people about it and how to make it seem like something we should care about. Mm -hmm. And so with the science behind organizing, it's just crazy. It's how do you talk to people and how do you make them think, right? And so... Like with me, my voice, as I said, I'm still trying to get my voice and trying to get it to like work with people. Yes. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to learn how to talk to people. So I'll be like, Sion, do you believe that we should have the sex trade or not? Mm-hmm. Right. I should give Sion, yes, she believes in it or yes or no, she does not support it. Yes. If I give her any option of being like oh i don't know then i haven't done my job like Mm. this i haven't learned anything from the science behind organizing because so some some questions there may not be a yes or no answer but a lot of the problems that we have i feel like it's very much a yes or no do you support this or do you not right like you can't be neutral in everything Mm. and so yeah just learning how to bring people out of that that comfort that they have of saying they're neutral and kind of like agitating them and be like, okay, so do you support this or do you not? Or like, what do you want to do about it? Yeah. Um, I think people, oh, and I'm jumping on here. I think neutral is, uh, people like to feel like it's a safe ground, you know? It's the, I'm not, I'm not on any of the extremes, but sometimes being neutral um, and not having an opinion. I, I think this is a quote, this is Audrey Lord. You're not really identifying the problem. You don't think you maybe you think it's a problem, but you're you're like, hey, but I'm out of it. I'm not doing anything about it. I'm just I'm, I'm neutral. Really, it feels like you're taking the side of the oppressor because the oppressor knows the problem, and they are they know what needs to be done to change it, and they're preventing it from being changed. And so, when you're neutral, you're preventing things from changing. I would say on the same line, being neutral or being ignorant is also a privilege that means you're not directly impacted Impacted. by it and you're not forced to think about it yeah exactly you both are so right i found the quote (laughs) it was not audrey lord audrey lord does talk a lot about um the transformative nature and, and just the transformation of silence actually she wrote something about the transformation of silence into 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 action into language and action like, if you, your silence will not protect you from anything. I guess maybe that's the closest one to what I was thinking. But the one um, that I shared earlier was Desmond Tutu. And he said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. 
If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Because who are you helping? <laughs> so my next question is, what were some of the highlights of this time, both the surprising and challenging observations from the protests and organizing this year or the past year? And this could either be you or some of the takeaways from Affirm as an organization and some of the work it's done last year. Okay. I think that one of the most surprising things is the turnout in a lot of the protests that we've had and just the verbal support. Although it's kind of hard to differentiate performative activism, Mm. at the end of the day, it is nice to have people show up and support you. Um, Whether you don't know if they fully have like really changed their opinions on things, um, but it seems like progress, I think. It's something that I don't really know how to talk about sometimes because it's, you know, I just don't know. Um, but it's really been surprising to see how people have been so inspired to really use their voices and to speak up for other people. Um, and I say speak up for other people because you don't want to be speaking for people, Um But yeah, it's been really surprising to see how inspired I think a lot of people have just become. And it's really inspiring to see how many, how much youth has really showed up for things and used their voice. I've seen so many like kids just arguing with their parents about issues. And it's like, that's not necessarily protesting, but that literally is a form of organizing. Like you're doing it on a very local personal level. And so that's really amazing. And I feel like People don't get enough credit for that because that's that's tough to have those conversations with an authoritative authoritative figure that you've had your whole life. And so, yeah, and I think this has really pushed. So during the pandemic, all these protests, it hasn't just been about like Black Lives Matter or about like climate change. It's been about so many issues. And I think that is like the beauty of it, um, allowing because when you go to these places and these protests, the organizers aren't just like, okay, here's the issue and you should focus on this. They really talk about other issues as, at the same time, which is just so amazing. They really allow other people to have their issues be put. And so that creates just a really big form of solidarity. And I think that's just really amazing. Like, people shouldn't really be fighting about if climate change matters more, human rights matter more. Like, they both matter. And you shouldn't be trying to fight which one matters more. It's just how are we addressing it and how are we really doing anything about it. And so that's been really surprising. I think people have just grown so much over this whole pandemic and just learning how to be better allies and informing other people at the same time. I think it's so cool that you say that. Um, and you brought up something and I was like, oh, um, performative <laughs> activism. And I think... A lot of people were thought about this during um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And then when they had the Blackout Tuesday, where then, you know, it was just, you know, you post this mm. black square. And that kind of, is that is that what you think? But yes, you can, mm, <laughs> because that in many ways could have been, for some people, performative activism. Because after that, you know, you, you really, you do nothing. Like I posted my black square. Yes. Then what? 
it's cool to hear you say what that looks like. Okay, so yeah, that's been interesting because I remember when it first, I was first starting to see the, all these posts. They're like, post a black square. And I'm like, I've been going to protest. Like, what am I going to post a black square for? Mm. All it's going to do is going to make me feel better for no reason. There's no, like, I'm not saying anything and I'm not doing anything. I'm just kind of showing people like, oh, I'm I'm taking part in this social media blackout. Yes. Which I don't think it hasn't really been. I don't think it benefited anybody. Um, so, yeah, I yeah, that was really interesting. Mm. But I do think that people that do performative activism, sometimes they try and maybe it's people that we need that we stand with that we have to really educate and inform each other and call out people that do performative activism because sometimes I don't know if they even know if they're doing it. Yeah. 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 And I think even going just back to Blackout Tuesday, there, I think there could be all the right intentions to activism, to any action that you feel like is, you know, I'm taking a stand, I'm showing everyone else what my stand is, which in 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 all honesty takes a lot of courage and boldness and it's not something that everyone has been doing you know because you know it does like you were saying it's it's you having a voice and and telling sharing it with someone not just one person but putting it on your social media and saying here's my voice and I'm supporting this cause and I want you to read about it and know about it so in in some ways it can be informative it's the idea that that one action is enough Oh, I'm doing it so that other people can see. Oh, I'm doing it because now this is the hashtag. So I need to jump on it too. That then takes away the purpose of the whole of the whole um of the whole campaign. So. Hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to add that in terms of like the black blackout Tuesday movement, it really cluttered up the hashtag BLM, which created like a very negative impact on the actual activists and actual activism that was using that um, hashtag to inform each other and kind of share like information on protests or like actual important things that people actually need access to right away. Um, So I think like what Perez said, um, even if there's intentions might not be the most negative things, it could still cause harm. So people really need to be educated, like Maria said, but also self-educate them because there are so many places that you can be educated. And especially for like when um, marginalized identities, people, when they share and they, when they're willing to educate other people, we should be thankful and listen to them and learn from them. But Mm -hmm. it's also not our place to ask them to educate us because it is not their job. I like now that we're on the conversation around activism, I think, um, I think too, might you be able to share from your experiences, the different ways that activism can look like, because it can look, I think lots of people are used to the one that's on the street with the ban- with the banners, but activism can also look a different host of things. Might you be able to share for our listeners what that could look like too? Yeah, so I think activism, like you mentioned, Pere, I think it you can see on the streets definitely, but I really think an important component is activism really starts within yourself. So mm-hmm. 
analyzing your values and how you want to portray them um, and do they align with people around you and is that something that you want to take up on mm. and so as an on an individual level that's something that you have to do with yourself yeah. and after that I think if you don't feel comfortable going the streets like that's fine mm -hmm. you don't have to like one of the hardest the hardest fights you'll have with activism is the people around you your family and your friends that can be really tough yeah um yeah so i think small scale or big scale activism really how it looks like for you is how are you advocating for what you believe in mm. and the ways that you do it and so are you really just informing people and yourself about the issues that you care about mm. mm -hmm. It's, it's cool that you should say that, but it comes from the people close to you. They're like, so wh why are you going to the streets? What if what if the police, what if they should, you know, what if what if all these things happen? And so that can be voices from people close to us. But then what would you say to people who don't see protesting as an efficient way um, of engaging with the political environment or with like civic education? What would you respond to them when they say, Okay, so then what? What happens after the post? What happened after the hashtag? How how would you answer that question? Yeah, so how I would answer, I would be like, so what are you doing? And... <laughs> oh, she said, uh -huh. what are you doing? <laughs> Going back. And yeah, and um, kind of how like, what are the policies that we are passing? Because that's something that we should also look at. Because um, policies and bills and laws get passed all the time. Mm -hmm. Are we paying attention to that? Because mm -hmm. that that dictates what can happen in the streets. Like if we're protesting, there's police violence. That can be allowed if we are not keeping track of these laws and bills and the actions that our governors and political figures are committing. Yeah. Um, and so holding people accountable outside of just protesting. And because... Okay, like, we have a governor and, like, city council members that be like, we support this, and, like, yeah, this is good. And then five months later, they go back on their word. You have to keep them accountable. Yes. Um, exactly. And even in your own work, like, what are you doing in your company, in your job? Like, mm. how are you advocating for these opportunities for other people and yeah. yourself? Um, so it doesn't have to be a mass level of protesting, but... What are you doing for yourself and yeah. for other people, yeah. wherever it is? Yeah. yeah. What's your small action? Because then it's a collection of all these small actions that then go on to make a big impact or go on to push bills or go on to push visibility. Of you. Thank you for sharing mm -hmm. that. Thank you for sharing that. Going back to the part that you talked about, how you wanted to go into like mental health in the future, um, can I ask like how do you go about supporting yourself or other people who are engaging in social activism? Um, what does like self care or mental health care look like for you and them? Um, and is it different from what non organizing people might be doing? Um, so I would say mental health care is really tough when you're an, an organizer or an activist mm. um, because I think so it's so much easier for me to show up for like Black Lives Matter, right? Yes. But when it's like when all the Asian hate crime was going on, I was having such a hard time mm. and I was 
I was just like, I think I just need this time to um, just rest. And so something I've learned recently is self-care. You don't have to add something to your routine. It's something you can also take away. And so momentarily, I just needed to take away my activism and care for myself because who can I act? Who can I use my voice for if I am not like well, mm-hmm. right? Or I don't have the strength. And so, um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it it can be really tough. I think being an activist is it's so much harder than I ever thought it was. You know, mm. and um, let me think. And I think it's a really hard topic because at the end of the day, all we want is liberation, right? And what does liberation look like for you? Yeah. And like realistically, you're not going to get that by next week. It's <laughs> going to be such a long Process. time. And so, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, having to, I don't know, I've just, I sleep a lot sometimes and um, I used to be really up to date on a lot of news stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing I had to take out because I'm like, I I can't do it. Yes. Right. Yes. And so, and it's fine to have, um, I've had like my sisters and my friends just kind of update me and that has been just so much easier for me mm-hmm. to take in that information. And so I'm also thankful for that. Um, not that I'm missing out on the information, but I'm still getting it. It's just in moderation at the same time. Yeah. That's so cool. You said self-care is not only what you do, it's also what you take out. That's really important. That's really, really important. And I think even for this past year, consuming news, you felt like I needed to know what's happening with COVID. How, when, 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 when is the vaccine rolling out? Who's, who's getting it first? There's another black man who's been shot. Where were they shot? Was it as in Brooklyn Park? Okay, that's like five minutes away from me. Oh, just consuming all this mm-hmm. information is really, really exhausting. And knowing when to be able to take that, that time and that space too, it's important. And another thing that you said that caught me clearly, now I'm just summarizing everything that you said because it was so cool. Um, <laughs> another thing that you said is um, made me think about how activism should look. It shouldn't be just, you know, if we're organizing for Black Lives Matter, it shouldn't just be black folks on the front on um on protesting because like you say, it's a it's it's a lot triggering more triggering for them, I guess, and so it's more difficult for them to show up. And so it's a fight for everyone. So that whether you're Asian or you're black, you can be in this fight. And so when the the tables are turned and now we are fighting against hate crimes because we are seeing them against Asian um, individuals, then we, we can also take care of our Asian uh, brothers and sisters and say, okay, I will fight this with you. If you need this break, okay, you break. If I need the break, I break. And then, you know, there's somebody fighting all the time because it is exhausting work, like you think. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing, Maria. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for summarizing that. I think that was really a good point where if I need to get ready, someone needs to like fill in for me and having that trust with other people. That's why I think solidarity is just so important when you show up for other people yeah. because in a way it really does help them. Even if you're not doing much, it still helps. Yeah. So show up. Show up, guys. <laughs> show up for others. <laughs> um, as, we are, as we're kind of thinking about how to wrap up today, how might you have like tangible ideas on what you think uh, your community and your community could be whoever you want to define as your community could be other 
among identifying people could be other women could be other immigrants um other first gens might you have tangible ideas on what you think your community can do to support you more and this can be support you as um maria a student or as maria an activist or with all these different layers and identities that you have what are tangible things you think that your community can support you more so tangible mm. i think um, intangible I think, too. <laughs> i think conversations are really tangible because that's something you can definitely hold on to not physically but like mentally you can definitely hold on to that and so i think having these conversations any conversation with people around you and your community um and or me that really helps me um because it gives you voice but it also gives you like i think in a way it it's a form of activism because you're also listening to other people's issues and you're thinking together how do we address these issues um and like not doubting yourself that you're not an activist you definitely can you don't have to be like super big or anything um but allowing yourself to learn from people and listen and being with people that listen to you because i don't know i've been in so many conversations with men or boys i don't know who to what to call them but um <laughs> they just don't listen sometimes and they're like i'm not sexist um then I'm like, then let me talk, like, let me finish. And that's something that women have, like, on a, just in general, women have kind of had to deal with that. Yeah. And like, not necessarily they won't do it on purpose, but that's, that's, it's a learned behavior. Like, I, I was never learned to speak over people mm. and to keep on talking. Um, like, I was taught to let them talk and let me listen and then talk. And so I definitely think people need to just be less ignorant and be more accepting of things that they might find out from conversations because no one's perfect. And I think at the end of the day, if people are willing to accept that and just willing to accept growth mm -hmm. from other people, because you learn best from people around you. Um, and Google's free too. You can learn from Google too. <laughs> she said <laughs> <And> Google's so... <laughs> free. <laughs> I think educating yourself and just letting people talk and reciprocating that back has is something that I think I would love so much and other people mm. probably love. Like you don't want to be ignored. Come on. Yeah. 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 I think like thank you Maria for bringing that up because I think that goes for so many marginalized identities. Like it takes a lot of effort for people who have those marginalized identities to even ha get the courage to speak up and when they do and get shut down they it's i feel like it can have way more damage than you might think that it would mm -hmm. so if you have any type of privilege check yourself in conversations please <laughs> and let people talk and learn correct correct yes Something I think is important is intersectionality. And so, like Sion mentions marginalized marginalized identities and communities. Um, and something to, important to think about is how many identities do you have that are marginalized and how many do you have that are not? Mm -hmm. And how do they interact with each other? Mm -hmm. And so being responsible as an individual to take a look at that and knowing how to address it. Because I'm an Asian woman. I'm I'm not a Black woman. I can't. I don't understand the experience as a black woman or mm -hmm. a white woman. Mm -hmm. 
but I'm still a woman, but it's not the same as, you know, like a black or white woman. Yes. And so I really have to think about those things before I really speak for anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a plug, if you want to hear more about intersectionality, catch one of our uh, podcast episodes with Shruvi. It was really cool uh, just unpacking the different layers of what intersectionality looks like and intersectional activism specifically. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay. (laughs) For our last question, I wanted to ask, like, what do you hope to see in the future in Resistance of Color? Like, not our podcast, but, like, in general, like, the bigger idea of resisting in color. And just, like, in general, in terms of, like, your mental health journey or as a future practitioner or as a researcher, what do you hope for the future? Um... So it kind of goes with what I want people to help me with, but I just hope people listen to each other. Um, like, can you imagine if we had dinner parties that are just so mixed? Like, that would be so cool. That would just be so cool. We could learn so much. And so that I feel like personal dinner parties or even just like your research lab or your job, your workplace, how are you seeing people of color there? If at all, if you see any people of color besides yourself, so I just hope people, people of color and people without color are able to stand together and just listen to each other and think about these issues and fight this system that, this system that's not broken, it's it's really working really well. It's very much intact. And so how do we dismantle this oppressive system mm-hmm. together? Because in all honesty, it really benefits everybody. And so it's seeing people talk about these things and educating and informing each other about these issues big or small um to really address the system that we can make work for us and everybody and Mm -hmm. people of color um because i think knowledge is power and so having that knowledge and resistance we can go so far with that and so i think yeah i just want to see people talking and trying to think of ways to really dismantle this oppressive system Mm -hmm. oh it almost feels like duh i mean if people have been talking about these issues all this time why haven't we been listening so even as you're saying it yeah everybody every all this all, all this fights throughout history all this movements people have been asking to be seen to be heard and, and it just means if nothing is changing, like, like you're saying, it just means nobody's nobody's listening or the people that need to be listening are not listening so that mm-hmm. change is happening, so that nothing changes because nobody's listening to the people who are saying, listen to me. Um, right. That is a good takeaway. Just list, listen. We should listen to one another. You know? It feels so obvious. Like, why haven't we been doing this all this time, guys? Come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, any last words anyone wants to share to, to our platform before we wrap up? Um, I guess I just want to say listening is really important, in my opinion, because, like, I go through my own struggles, mm-hmm. but some people may go through the same thing, and, and that's something in the Hmong community. I hear all the time, they're like, oh, Black people don't understand, and Black people, have you ever lived in the hood? Like, I hear that all the time, Like, mm. and I'm like... I don't... Okay, if you listen to what they're saying and what you're saying, a lot of it's the same thing. We're mm. all mad about the same thing. We're all hurt from the same thing. Yes. 
um, just thinking about the bigger picture and how there are parallels within all our experiences. Not, not exactly, but you can see where it comes from. And so I think that is why listening is just so important. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much wisdom, so much wisdom. And <laughs> no, I'm still learning. <laughs> no, good. And, and I think oh, I'm learning too. And, and, and as, uh, the, as our listeners, I hope they're learning as well. That's the way that the oppressor wins. You know, he makes it, the oppressor makes it look like you're very different from this one. Your struggle is very different. So you can't help this one. Help yourself first. But really, is the oppressor still dangling, dangling and, and holding the strings and controlling the game? And we can't, we've, we've not seen that it's the same person who's doing it. It's a, it's a dismantle the system. That, that reminds me of how a white man made the concept of model minority when Asians first coming to the U.S. to pit Asians and black individuals against each other. Oh. So like you said, they would be busy fighting each other trying to not be the bottom layer, quote-unquote, of the racial identities, while the white people who are making all of that societal discrimination is just sitting there on the top. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Uh, Okay, no, we're not saying that. We're not endorsing that. We're all against that. We're against it. (laughs) We're against it. We're saying no. (laughs) We don't want that to happen. (laughs) Oh, wow. Um... Maria, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your insights and being so honest and vulnerable with us about your work and some of the lessons that you've been learning as well in your work and that you're continuing to learn. Um, I hope that they continue to be enriching. And I know less, lessons are, are hard, even for me, as I, as I learn more about my role, my identities and what work I can do. Like, okay, I have more things to do. There's more to do. There's more to learn. There's so much more to do. So thank you for sharing uh, and being here with us today and contributing to us your act of resistance in color. We appreciate you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me this platform to have a voice and letting me use it. Yes. And I'm really, I'm just really happy to be surrounded with other women of color in this episode. So thank you so much. (laughs) Yay, thank you. No, stop, literally. Thank you so much for coming on. I know, like, at some point, people are going to be like, why don't you have all the great people around you? I'm just like, (laughs) (laughs) I can't help that, you know? (laughs) I'm surrounded by amazing people. Um, But yeah, no, thank you for even willing to, like, share your experiences. It's not something that everyone can do. Um, Like we talked about, it. we need a lot of encouragement and determination yes. to share as an oppressed individual so thank you thank you thank you and thank you all thank for you. listening stay tuned for our next episodes visit nami minnesota online at namimn.org all music loops used in this episode came from the song titled the way produced by mike lighty and made available through a creative commons license Mike Lighty's music can be heard online at soundcloud.com forward slash Mike Lighty. Lighty is spelled L-E-I-T-E. For information about the Creative Commons license and additional links to Mike's music, including the full version of the song, The Way, please see the podcast show notes for this episode.